Welcome to Case in Point, produced by the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. My name is Claire Finkelstein, and I am the Algernon Biddle Professor of Law and Professor of Philosophy, and also the Faculty Director of Penn Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law. Joining me today is Alexandra Mize, who is currently a senior fellow at Searle. Before she joined us at Penn, Xander spent over a decade in practice preventing and resolving international disputes. This work included representing and advising sovereign governments and other clients in U.S. courts in treaty-based international arbitrations and public international law disputes, as well as designing and implementing rule of law-based legal reforms and human rights best practices. In addition to her work with Searle, she teaches international human rights law at Georgetown University Law Center, is a non-resident fellow at the Center on Sustainable Investment, and a political partner of the Truman National Security Project. We are here today to talk about her briefing paper entitled Lessons from the Arctic, the Need for Intersectoral Climate Security Policy. Welcome, Xander. Xander, in your paper, you make a case for thinking of climate change as a national security imperative. Your message is hitting at just the right moment, it would seem, since that perspective seems to have caught on with future Biden administration officials as well. Xander, can you tell us why climate change is a matter of national security? Climate change touches upon every aspect of our national security structure. It affects not only our military readiness, but it also affects foreign relations. It is an, a threat multiplier whereby it uh, can fuel violent conflict, which of course is a security concern of ours, but it also affects economic development, our economic security, and of course human security, in that its effects have a direct impact on the life and health of U.S. citizens and everyone on this planet. One of the main things that your paper brings to the fore is the importance of the Arctic to our national security policy with regard to climate change. Can you explain to us why the Arctic is so important for climate and security policy? Of course, uh, the Arctic is the harbinger of climate's impacts globally. We see this with the fact that while global temperatures have been increasing uh, significantly since the industrial age, those temperatures are increasing faster in the Arctic region than everywhere else. So we see impacts on the land and the environment. Very specifically, we've seen the acceleration of ice melt in the Arctic region. This leads to the opening of multiple opportunities or economic development, but also engagement by governments with military security and military strategy. Uh, when it comes to U.S. relations, there's been much talk about great power competition. And great power competition would be Russia, China, and the United States, and the new dance that these three nations do in all sectors, uh, particularly on uh, security and economy. And so those countries come together in the Arctic region. Russia, of course, has had a significant presence in the region, militarily and otherwise, for decades. Uh, the United States, an Arctic nation, uh, through Alaska, we've had certainly a presence in the Arctic for years, 
But as we see these shifts in the ice melt, shifts in the regions that are open to military access to economic development, we are increasing our presence, as is Russia. And then China, which has declared itself a near Arctic nation, despite not having its own Arctic coastline, has been uh, very active in the region and, and has expressed a keen interest in being more involved there. And so looking at this, you know, this is a potential area in which those tensions could play out. So this great power competition that you're talking about, is that for military dominance of the area, commercial dominance of the area, control over potential shipping lines uh, in a new melted Arctic region? What sort of competition are we talking about? You see all of these things overlap. Shipping lanes, as they open, are not just used for transport of goods. Of course, they are also used for military access, military transport. You cannot isolate any one of these things from the others. Scientific development in the region, well, that may have a military application, but it also has a economic development application. It has an intellectual research and uh, uh, application, uh, which of course affects far beyond just the physical region of the Arctic. It's all of these things together. What impact do you think this power competition and specifically the melting of the Arctic will have on the U.S. security priority? What do you think the U.S. should be focused on in the Arctic as far as our security goes? When it comes to the Arctic, there are several avenues that we need to take to increase uh, our security position. You have an infrastructure component of this increasing our military presence in the region. That will come with the need for uh, securing our bases and military installations in the region. That comes with increasing our technology that we use in that region. Uh, we have some icebreakers. There has been talk about increasing the number of icebreakers we have, for instance. Uh, but one of the big things that we need to address with regard to our operations there is how climate is affecting the installations we already have. So we see in Alaska, for example, the fact that as temperatures have increased and we see warmer temperatures for longer lengths of time each year, there's been a destabilization in the permafrost in the region. There has been an effect on multiple aspects of infrastructure including the stability of our tarmacs, for instance, for landing airplanes, stability of uh, foundations of buildings on our bases, uh, other parts of the infrastructure that we have there with regard to power and access to resources. We need to secure those, which helps us secure our, our presence. So that's one aspect of what's going on. But also as Russia, as China, as other countries uh, take advantage of the fact that more open seas includes more lanes in which to navigate uh, with both military and economic vessels, we want to make sure that we are doing that too, that expressing our presence uh, under uh, freedom of navigation of seas uh, principles, we demonstrate that we are there, we are present, we will continue to be present. Um, 
There has been much talk about whether the United States should formally join the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. This has been a point of discussion for years. Uh, the United States follows that treaty in many ways, but we are not a formal state party to it. Um, if we were to become a formal state party to it, that offers an avenue for engaging with other Arctic nations over who controls what parts of the sea, the territorial sea of each country, uh, what's the exclusive economic zone where we can develop the resources, fishing and otherwise in areas, things like this. So that is absolutely something to consider as we move forward with our security policy. Um, and you know there are other aspects as well. If you think of the Arctic as this window, it is that window through which we can see so many of the other issues that we have globally, whether it's with our relations with great powers, but also with other countries as well. You call for an intersectoral approach to climate change. Can you explain exactly what you mean by that? I love the word intersectoral. And I realize that when people hear it, it's a, an unusual word and you know, it does not necessarily roll off the tongue, but I'll explain why I use that word. It's most often used in a health context. And that comes from the idea that healthcare, public health, doesn't just relate to your time interacting with a doctor in a clinical setting. When it comes to improving public health, you need to integrate efforts beyond the traditional healthcare space and talk about education, environmental protection, housing, nutrition, economic development, all of these things contribute to public health. And so the public health community for years has been talking about, as they put it, the in, need to in, have an intersectoral approach to health, take different sectors that affect health and bring them together to form health policy. I say that similarly when it comes to climate, because climate affects every sector and aspect of our society, our econ economics, our security, that that's the kind of approach we need for climate. This isn't just about traditional hard security. This isn't just a DOD solution or a uniform military solution. Climate change requires us to plan, consider, implement, policies across all aspects of government and society. So it sounds as though in suggesting an intersectoral approach to climate change and climate security policy, um, there's some analogy there to, to a health crisis such as the one we're facing now, uh, for example, the, the crisis with COVID-19. Yes. I mean, one thing that health and the climate change problem have in common is that this isn't your traditional enemy. This is not just an us versus them. There's a direct conflict you can have a battle, battle gets resolved, somebody wins. It's far more complex than that. And it affects everyone. And so we look at COVID-19. And one thing that we've learned from that is that very quickly, if certain things are not addressed, they can spin out. And we went in a one month period in the United States from the, the virus is just coming in to, oh my goodness, we now have nationwide lockdowns of one kind or another. Our economy has come to a screeching halt. This has affected ability of states and federal governments to govern, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so people have looked at the COVID crisis as an opportunity for stress testing some of our democratic institutions. Uh, I think that climate is another example of that. Let me think of climate to date as being something not quite acute. Okay, yes, maybe there's warming uh, or maybe there's a shift in climate structures, but is it really so bad today? Do we need to do something about it today? And that's been part of the obstacle in addressing climate issues. Well, I would like to hope that a lesson that we get from COVID is that swift action earlier is more effective than trying to fix problems after the fact. And there's and another interesting analogy here, Xander, as well, which is that the COVID crisis has brought out deep inequalities in our society. And I'm wondering if, if a melting climate would do the same in terms of refugees and migration and uh, create incredible hardship uh, as we see the impact on human populations. Absolutely, Claire. When it comes to vulnerable populations, climate most certainly affects them first and more acutely. We just even look at Alaska, for example. If we look at the towns in Alaska that are being most affected by the changing landscape. And when I say most affected, I mean, there are towns that are truly melting away. As that ice shifts, as that permafrost shifts, we see that there are areas that have been settled for generations that the native people of Alaska need to move out of because the town is literally crumbling. And Alaska has already been engaged in this. We think of the town of Newtok, for instance, where the entire town has shifted. They moved their buildings. They had to move to a new location because the original location was drifting off into the sea and being flooded. So, you know, that's a very literal and visual example of a direct impact, but it's more than that. We see that environmental concerns related to climate, whether that be pollutants, whether that be effect, effects to water resources, things like that. These tend to hit areas of our community, of our society that have already been hit by other things. When a plant closes and then there are pollutants from that plant, now we have people have lost their jobs from the closing of the plant of the original structure. We have the uh, pollutants that are now affecting, uh, potentially affecting the individuals who live there and that kind of thing. So those are some more direct examples that people may think of. But from a wider standpoint, you mentioned migration, absolutely. Climate changes environments, that changes agriculture, that changes access to resources, water shifts, food shifts. Well, when you have that, people are going to move. And so an example would be the crisis we've had at our Southern border in recent years. You look at that situation, what are its causes? Of course, there are many, but one of them would be that as temperatures and climates have changed in areas of traditional agriculture, in the mountains, in the suburbs of cities, in uh, more rural areas of countries, people are moving to the cities for work because the coffee plantation, plantations do not have the yield they used to. Farmers cannot grow the crops they used to grow. Well. As you then see one thing leads to another, more people in a smaller space with limited resources, naturally this is a pushes on the button uh, of, of conflict. But turn to the other side of the globe, 
There are experts who have pointed to water resource allocation, climate uh, temperature effects and things like this as being, again, this threat multiplier and amplifier for conflicts in the Sahel in Africa, in Syria and things like this. When you already have record droughts, when you already have limited resources, again, this pushes on tension points, causes people to shift, causes potential, potential conflict. One thing we've already talked about is unclosed the UN Treaty on the Law of the Sea and that the Biden administration could look at possibly joining that treaty uh, as it would help us to coordinate with other Arctic and near Arctic nations. Um, But what about the Paris Climate Accord? What impact would that have? And do you expect that the Biden administration will uh, try to rejoin that accord? The Biden administration has made clear that they fully intend for the U.S. to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. What that means then for the United States as to what we have to do to meet our obligations on that? Well, we're going to have to make a statement setting voluntary targets for how we are going to limit greenhouse gases in the coming years. And the goal of the accord overall is we want to limit enough greenhouse gases worldwide that we keep the increased global temperature at under two degrees Celsius. Uh, That may sound easy, but temperatures have already increased 1.2 degrees Celsius. And we're on a path to that two degree point uh, much faster than folks intended. But the United States being the second largest producer of greenhouse gases, our participation in this is crucial. Can you talk briefly about some of the climate highlights of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2021? Yes, and from a climate standpoint, the uh, NDAA is very exciting that we have seen that there are several parts of that bill that really focus on climate. And that bill being a bipartisan bill, I would like to hope that it bodes well for how we may see additional cooperation from Congress on climate in the future. So the first thing that that the new NDAA does is that it calls for the DOD to update its climate change adaptation roadmap. So that was set in 2014. Enough years have passed, it truly does need an update. And what this roadmap includes is consideration of how our military departments and defense infrastructure needs to incorporate climate change into planning and operations, needs to figure out and identify approaches and measures that they can take to mitigate risk of current and and foreseeable extreme weather events and other effects of climate. Uh, When it comes to military readiness, climate is pressing on our vulnerabilities. Um, We see how, for example, with uh, several hurricanes in recent years, how those extreme weather events have taken a real toll on some of our military installations. Uh, We have the, the infamous base in Alabama where a billion dollar in damage was done, destroyed planes, things like this. But it's more than just those weather events. It's issues such as uh, increased drought, increases wildfire risk. That affects ability of our troops to train. You can't use live fire when you have the risk of setting off a wildfire. 
increased temperatures for longer times in the year affects training of our troops in other ways. When you have what are called black flag days where the temperature gets up too high, humidity gets too high, we, it's dangerous to have troops train. That's a problem as well. Uh, and of course, our physical infrastructure at our installations is affected by uh, the shifting landscape. Look at Norfolk Naval Base. As flooding has increased there, as the waterline has increased there, it's a real concern uh, as to how to address uh, that um, in light of how that's affecting, uh, again, our buildings and our infrastructures in that area. So part of that, our DOD is supposed to update the roadmap addressing that. In addition, um, it's giving DOD more authority to actually implement those resilience projects. So cutting through some of the red tape when it comes to DOD being able to take action to address what it identifies uh, as being needed to address climate. It's going to call upon the Coast Guard to do a climate assessment as well, which is important because we've seen the other uh, departments already do plans. Coast Guard will now do a new plan as well. One of the things I find most interesting is the creation of a new National Academies Climate Security Roundtable. I think this is really important. So this roundtable is going to function in support of the Climate Security Advisory Council. That was something that was established through last year's NDAA. But this roundtable is going to bring together uh, intelligence officials, members of the science community, Department of Defense, uh, folks from research institutions as well, industry and nonprofits, together to talk about identifying gaps in our knowledge, uh, knowledge structure on climate and identify where we need more of this research, where we need more development and things like this. So I find this to be really exciting, but we're gonna have to see how this plays out in practice, but that's something I'm certainly going to be looking towards. And, and that really is an intersectoral approach. Absolutely, absolutely. So this, this does bode, bode well, I think, uh, for a, a positive direct trajectory in, in addressing uh, our climate risks. Uh, last question I want to ask you is about the appointment of John Kerry as special envoy for climate. And uh, now, of course, he'll be working with not only a Democratic House, but uh, a Democratic-led Senate. Can you just say a few words about what you think he'll be able to accomplish over the next few years and, and you know, give us something hopeful to look forward to? <laughs> uh, the... Announced appointments from the transition really do give me hope. We see that across the board, not just in positions that expressly state that they're climate related, but also in other offices that climate experts are being put at the table. So yes, there is Secretary Kerry, but there, it is so much more than that. We have, as the Secretary of Energy, uh, you know, Jennifer Grantham has been nominated, former governor of Michigan. Michigan has uh, been at the forefront of issues of climate justice. So that's part of the Biden policy priorities. But, um, you know, to have somebody in that role who also is from the state where our car industry is, that relates to the greenhouse gases. So someone who understands that in that role is, is very exciting. We see Gina McCarthy being appointed as uh, ahead of the White House Office on Climate Policy. So people think about Kerry being that international face and focused outward. Gina McCarthy is going to help direct policy on the domestic side and coordinating that. And she's the former EPA administrator, 
EPA administrator under Obama. So someone with really robust um, environmental creds. Uh, we also see Deb Holland being appointed Secretary of the Interior. So she comes to that position uh, from Congress where she represented New Mexico, uh, but she is a member of the Native American community, has been a vocal representative for the needs of Native Americans in the United States, in particular also how they're being affected by climate and other issues. So to have her in that role where Interior controls so much of the federal land that's developed for uh, fossil fuels and other things, that um, is also going to be uh, an interesting placement and we'll see how that plays. But just yesterday, the Biden team announced their appointments for the White House Counsel's Office. And I couldn't help but note that one of those appointments is someone who used to be the executive director for the Center for Applied Environmental Law and Policy, right? And this is someone who is an expert on climate issues, uh, on uh, environmental effects. So again, another example of seeing climate put into place in every, uh, in every office. Well, it seems as though this will be a high priority for this administration, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what can be done to at least slow the uh, warming of temperatures and the melting of the Arctic uh, and, and possibly uh, reverse the effects of climate damage. Do you think these effects, any of them, are reversible? I'm not a scientist. But it's generally agreed that we cannot reverse, we can slow. And at this point, slow is the best option that we have. Now, of course, there are scientists who are working on initiatives related to geoengineering, for example, geoengineering being this idea that we may be able to come up with a way to actually reverse the warming trends, whether that be through manipulating our atmosphere, affecting certain parts of the oceans uh, with um, more reflective material and things like this. But I'm in favor of a multi-pronged approach. We can have folks uh, go down a geoengineering path, see if there might be something there, but we can't rely upon that. We can't rely upon the idea we can reverse. One thing we can control, well, we can at least try and mitigate how we contribute to the possible warming. And so, you know, but to do that, we need robust action. And while the president can take some of these actions through executive orders and executive authority, that's not going to be a long-term solution. As we have seen from shifts between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, actions taken by executive order can be undone by executive order. And something like climate, this is not a short-term solution. We need to build our infrastructure, build our institutions to be able to respond to this threat with long-term planning. And so one thing about having both houses of Congress in democratic hands, one hopes that some of the things that had to date been done through executive action perhaps could be solidified in legislation because that is going to help us really take the plans that we need for the long-term resiliency. Uh, so we will see what this, what this brings.
Sander, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you especially for your time at Penn Law as a senior fellow of the Center for Ethics and the Rule of Law. It's been such a pleasure to learn from you on this critical topic and on many other topics. And for this fascinating briefing paper, uh, which we have just released. Uh, and I look forward to seeing uh, the role that you can play in helping uh, to to work on the continuing to work on these issues and to uh, continue to educate the rest of us uh, about the importance of uh, climate change and the intersection with uh, national security. Thank you so much. Thank you, Claire, for having me, not only for this podcast, but for my time at Penn. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. Mm -hmm.